Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. A very blessed morning to my brothers and sisters in Christ at Harvest Bible Chapel. And also good morning to those who are joining us from other parts of Malaysia. I wish you an equally blessed morning. Hope you all have been keeping well during this period of time as our country opens up in various sectors. Once again, I would like to extend my heartfelt thanks to the elder team for the great privilege to be able to share with you the word of God this morning. I last preached at Harvest in the month of April. So also thank you to everyone at this church for trusting me another time to bring to you the word of God. Uh, I guess at this point, you don't really have a choice since you're already tuning in. You tune in and you're already listening. Uh, so don't turn off, okay? Let's go on. Let's advance from here. Now, uh, I want to begin this morning with a question. If you know, that's what I, I like to do, okay? Asking people questions at the start of my sermon. Although I won't receive an interaction from you, uh, but I hope you can at least imagine your answer. Okay, so this is the question. When was the last time you take out the trash? When was the last time you take out the trash, the garbage? This might be a very weird question, uh, but just think of, think of it, okay? When was the last time? I think you do it every day, right? I think you do it every day. Now, uh, the story goes that a woman once went away on a long weekend uh, a weekend retreat, okay, with a group of other women from her church. About halfway through the Monday morning session, she suddenly got up and left the room. Concerned, a friend followed her to see what had caused her to leave the meeting so abruptly. She found herself, uh, she found her friend uh, just as she was hanging up the phone, hanging up a phone call. Is everything all right? She asked urgently. The woman responded, oh, yes. Uh, I didn't mean to cause alarm. I suddenly remember that it is Monday morning trash day. The friend replied, trash day? Isn't your husband still at home? Yes, the woman clarified, but it takes two of us to put out the trash. I can't carry it and he can't remember it. So they help each other to remember to take out the trash. Have you noticed the amount of trash that goes out of your house in a day? The amount of garbage that goes out in a day? How many kilo is that from your household? Can you make a wild guess? Turn to the person next to you. Uh, if you're watching this with your family members, uh, whether your, your parents or your spouse or your children, uh, turn to the family member next to you and ask how many kilos of trash do you throw away in a day? Yeah? Ask, your, ask the person next to you. Now, this is the data uh, from a website uh, called mole.my. The average Malaysian throws away 1.64 kilo of waste daily. That's quite a bit. 
compared to the worldwide average of 1.2. Uh, our waste production will increase to 17,000 tons by last year. This data is from 2017 today. So it's actually older. It could have increased. So we throw away 1.6 kilo of kilogram of garbage every day on average. Now, why am I talking about garbage? What is the significance of it? Will this sermon be about recycling? Or if not, then what? Hopefully it will become clearer as we go along in the sermon this morning. Uh, the title for our sermon is All I Once Held Dear. And the scripture passage is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. We'll go through the scripture uh, during the sermon itself as well. Okay? Now, let us open in prayer. Father, we pray that uh, as we dwell upon your word, uh, as your word is heard preached, may your name be glorified. May your Holy Spirit take your word and uh, speak to us and speak to us so that we can truly uh, understand what you are saying and uh, be encouraged by it, but not just encouraged, but also be transformed by your word, Lord. May the name of Jesus be glorified as we seek to glorify you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, and we pray. Amen. Okay, first, let, let us have some context of the story so far in Philippians. Uh, we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, okay? In chapters 1 and 2, uh, Paul explained how Christians should respond to challenges and hardships. Since Christ was willing to obey God all the way, even to the point of death, we should do the same. We should obey Christ all the way until the day we leave the earth. Uh, complaining and worry have no place in the life of a born-again believer. Now here in chapter 3, that's our chapter for this morning, Paul makes a bold contrast. Okay, we'll see Paul warning against the influence of false teachers, particularly those who add legalism on top of the gospel. Paul then describes his impeccable credentials, showing that he has the right to consider himself justified, justified according to the traditional Jewish view. And yet Paul takes a surprising turn. And that sets up his final greetings and instructions uh, in chapter 4. So for this morning, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. Uh, one of the most important passages of not just Paul's writing, but arguably of the entire Bible. Okay, so verse 1 here says, Okay, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This is one of the hardest passages in Philippians. Paul is about to confront a danger to the church that hadn't even happened yet. Okay, so Paul here is uh, saying that whatever happens, right, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, okay, may the Lord give you joy. He said that he will never get tired of telling them this, that it is, it is the, the word of God and also the joy of the Lord okay, to serve them. And he's doing this for their own good. Paul is setting the stage here to deal with some unpleasant issues. Okay, let's look at the next verse. Verse 2, okay? In verse 2, Paul utters some very strong words. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
who is he talking about? Is it all right to call other, other people dogs or, or non-Christian dogs? Can we use that vocabulary? Is that okay to use today? What mutilation of flesh are we talking about here? We have so many questions, right? Don't we? When we read this, and most of us start to wonder why Paul was so upset in verse 2 here. Uh, let's fill in some of the background of under, uh, to understand the context. Okay, As you know, when Christianity started, uh, it came out of the Jewish religion. In the early days, it was actually seen as a part of Judaism. To become a Christian without also becoming Jewish in those days was unthinkable. The problem came when Gentiles began to enter the church. Gentiles as in non-Jews, okay? At first, they, were, uh, they, they wondered, the, the Jews wondered if Gentiles could really become Christians. But the Holy Spirit solved that one for them when the Gentiles began to speak in tongues and praising God. Okay, this is what happened in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. Let's see the passage. Uh, while Peter was still saying these, with these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, this, that means the Jews, okay, who had come with Peter were amazed. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling, praising God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So Peter saw that they had received the Holy Spirit and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter stayed with them to teach them. Coming back to the verse, verse 2. As evidenced by Peter, there was no doubt that the Gentiles had become part of what God was doing. Yet at that time, at that time, the question remains, shouldn't the Gentile Christians then become converts to Judaism? Isn't that part of what it means to be a Christian? Uh, part of adopting Judaism was becoming circumcised. You think that baptism is demanding. Imagine the deacons coming to meet you about getting circumcised. Those who argue for this even had a verse. They were quote from Genesis chapter 17, verse 14. Anyone who refuses to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family for violating the covenant. This was a big issue in the church at that time. The issue had actually been debated and settled 11 years earlier in the meeting described in Acts chapter 15. But there, was, there, there were still some who were trying to convince the Gentile believers that they, need to, that they must be circumcised. This was going to be a huge issue in Philippi, uh, and Paul knew that. Okay? Most of the people there were Gentile believers. It was probably only a matter of time before some, uh, some of them, some of these false teachers arrived in the church to convince them to be circumcised. Now, Paul was not neutral on this issue. Okay, we know that. Why? Why was he not neutral? Because he understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he knew the dangers of adding any human requirements to it. Even so-called good acts okay, that, that were instituted for the Jews. The circumcision was instituted for the Jews. But, uh, but these acts could very well become unintentional or even idolatrous stumbling blocks for the Gentiles. If circumcision is required for salvation, then does baptism save as well? 
turn around and ask your family member next to you, does baptism save? Of course not. Neither circumcision nor baptism do anything to your salvation. Remember, salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ. So look at these phrases I raised earlier in verse 2. Okay, What do they mean? Look out for the dogs. The Jews were used to calling all the Gentiles dogs. Okay, The Jews actually called the Gentiles dogs, mainly because the Gentiles were viewed as unclean. Paul tells the church, which has the righteousness and purity of Christ, to watch out for these unclean Jews, these unclean Jewish false teachers, for they are the real dogs. Okay, so instead of letting the Jews, Paul himself is, is, is a Jew, okay? Instead of letting the Jews call the Gentiles dogs, Paul is saying that Gentiles, you are, you are pure, you are righteous in Christ. Okay, so you are supposed to be the ones who consider the Jewish teachers who are unclean, that they are the dogs, not you. Look out for evildoers. These false teachers were teaching righteousness of the law. In other words, they were teaching about salvation that comes through Christ, and yet you need to keep mosaic rituals and laws. They were not promoting godliness. They were promoting legalism. In their attempts to add moralism and legalism to grace of God as a means of salvation, they were nullifying the work of Christ for their own work. And that made them evildoers, evildoers in God's eyes. And therefore, it is right to call them evildoers. Paul is not saying that you should go out and call them evildoers, but Paul is just labeling them as evildoers because they did evil in God's eyes. And the last one there, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What does that mean? Because the circumcision they promoted was to earn salvation. Okay, these false Jewish teachers, okay? So Paul is basically saying that their form of circumcision was nothing more than mutilating the flesh. Serious injunction against them. Now, look at verse 3. Okay, we read in verse 3 here, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What is Paul saying here? What does Paul mean by we are the circumcision? right after calling those who promote circumcision as dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of flesh. It's quite strange, right? Paul is actually calling the church the circumcision, the Christians are the circumcision. Uh, now, just to share with you a little non-fact, okay? We were choosing the name of, uh, to call our church here, the church that I go to. Uh, we're supposed to call my church the Church of Circumcision. Uh, just kidding. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You don't really call this name because uh, it sounds so weird. Okay, it's a really weird thing to call to call the church uh, the circumcision. Okay, but this is what Paul is saying that we are the circum circumcision. He using that term because it's covenant language. Okay, it's covenant covenantal language. He said we are the circumcision. It's just like saying we are God's people. That's what Paul is really really saying here. We are the people of God. Now look at the covenant God made with Abraham, where we are introduced to the uh, covenant, uh, the, the act of circumcision. That was in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. Okay? 
God said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep, telling Abraham, you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. So it's a covenant between God and Abraham and Abraham's uh, descendants, male descendants. But you see, okay, in Romans, Paul told us that circumcision was never about this uh, medical procedure, okay? It was always about the heart. Circumcision is really about the heart, okay, not the flesh. So we have a heart that is committed to our covenant with God. That's what it means. Your heart is circumcised, okay? We are those who are saved by grace through faith, but the Holy Spirit indwells us. Our hearts are circumcised by God, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we become part of the covenantal people of God. When we recognize we who are in Christ, it allows us to worship in the Spirit. Uh, if we worship in the Spirit, we find our fulfillment and joy in Christ. Okay, we recognize we, uh, who we are okay, in Christ. It allows us to worship in the Spirit and we will find fulfillment and joy in Christ. Now, all this might sound strange to us today okay, because this circumcision matter isn't really an issue for us anymore. Uh, it's not really hotly debated in our circles, at least not in Malaysia, yeah? But did you know that the same kind of thing is happening today? Okay, the same kind of thing is happening today. The equivalent today would be saying, you have to become a follower of Jesus Christ, plus you need to do something else. That something else may be walking up an aisle, signing a card, praying a certain prayer, singing a certain way, dressing in some particular type of clothing. It's so easy to begin to add human requirements to what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ, even to add a cultural requirement to it. And we'll come back to the cultural part soon again. Now, some of you may say, okay, Paul, we get your point, but you're carrying this a little too far. Or even you're just saying that because you're not one of us. You don't understand us. Have you heard of that before? You're telling me because you don't understand my position. You've never been on my side. You've never been in my shoes. Paul says, if you want to talk about that, I'm on equal footing with any of you. Let's look at the next few verses. Sorry, my throat is really dry. Okay, this is what Paul says in verses 4 to 6. Now, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says he has more reason to be confident in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What is Paul saying here? Paul had the right upbringing, nationality, family background, inheritance, orthodoxy, activity, and morality. He had all the right credentials, but instead of bringing him closer to God, they got in the way. The advantage became a disadvantage. His credentials and advantages led him to persecute the church and oppose what God was doing. 
it would be like Paul saying today, don't write me off, you know, thinking that I do not know the, the way the church works. I have never missed a church service since the week I was born. I've attended every meeting and every program of the church. I've served in preaching, ushering, Sunday school, youth ministry, young adult fellowship, men's ministry, spoke at women's uh, fellowship camp, and senior citizen fellowship. I've memorized large portions of scriptures and even know many hymns and worship songs by heart. All the credentials are there. Paul isn't challenging from the outside. He's an insider. He's, he's challenging as someone who has been steeped in the culture that he's challenging. He has credibility to speak to the issue. Now, here's how it goes in many of our lives. When we come to Christ, okay, he begins to change us. Christ be begins to change us. We know that there's nothing that we, we did or could do to earn salvation. The salvation is by the grace of God. Over time, our characters begin to change by the grace of God. Then after a while, okay, we begin to confuse. Okay, we get confused between our changed character and the entry requirements of faith. Okay, that they're having faith versus our characters that were changed. We begin to, to, to think that you have to act a certain way or look a certain way or clean up your act enough, to clean it up enough, okay, to become a follower of Jesus Christ. So the changed characters have now become the entry requirements of faith. We even begin to isolate ourselves from those who aren't like us. We leave those who are different from us. We leave them behind. Eventually, we start to confuse the cultural markers of what it means to be a good person with what it means to be a Christian. The markers we use are what Christians should do and shouldn't do become as important as faith itself. We begin to confuse between justification and sanctification. Okay, justification is by faith, by the grace of God, saved by grace through faith. Faith is all that is required. The person's uh, how, how he looks or to do or not to do, those things are part of the process of sanctification, the later process after a person comes to Christ. So we shouldn't confuse them, okay? So what is wrong with this? If you confuse them, what happens? Things like dressing a certain way, liking a certain type of music, attending certain meetings, eating certain food, doing certain things, not doing certain things. Just like in Paul's days, okay, uh, these things, similar to circumcision, okay, was there anything wrong with these things? Was there anything wrong with circumcision? Circumcision itself is not wrong. Okay? These things in themselves, they are not wrong. The issues aren't with these things. The issues is our attitude towards them. If we begin to think that God is impressed by them and that others are required to do them as well, then there is an issue. Something is wrong. It becomes a, a problem when we lose clarity about what really matters and we think that these uh, requirements or the, the, the markers, the signs, are essential to being a Christian. Uh, let, let me give you an example. How many of us have ever heard of this uh, from your parents when, when uh, you know, the parents will tell the children to get dressed to go to church, okay? So they will say you are dressing up to meet the queen. 
uh, probably if you are from a country with no queen, you might still say something similar. Okay? You're going to see the royalty, you know. So you need to dress up in order to go to the church. Okay, I, I, I don't know. I think even my wife and myself, we, we, have, we might have said this, you know, to our boys at some point, you know. We want them to dress smart when they go to church or at least when they dress uh, smart to go out of the house. Okay, they need to dress up. You see, there's nothing wrong okay, with getting dressed up. I'm not saying that you shouldn't dress up. Okay? There's nothing wrong with getting dressed up, as in dress well. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. The problem is when we start to think that anything we wear could impress God. The problem is when we think that God is more impressed with the man in the suit or the lady in the dress than somebody else in jeans and a t-shirt. There's nothing wrong that we could wear. Uh, so there's, there's nothing that we, we could wear that earn us acceptance by God. Okay, As the scripture says, God judges the heart not the outward appearance. So whatever we wear does not change our acceptance by God. It may matter to you. Okay? It might affect those people around you, which is important, okay? Uh, it may matter to you. It might even be important to you, yourself, how you dress. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is fine, okay? But it is wrong to think that you have earned points with God or that others should, should all do as you do. Nothing we do out of human effort earns us acceptance with God. Remember that. So what's the alternative to living this way? If you don't want to live this way, what's the alternative? Let's read verses 7 to 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Knowing Jesus is better than everything. Supreme, preeminent, and surpassing. Nothing comes close to Jesus. Jesus is so much better than everything that all of it counts as loss. Everything, even Paul's best credentials, are not just meaningless, they are garbage. Now, there's a word in verse 8 okay, that caused quite a stir in the biblical academia. Uh, verse 8 again. It's the word rubbish. Depending on your translation, it might be another word. Okay? Rubbish or garbage or, or refuse. Now, what's wrong with the word rubbish, you might ask? Isn't that the same meaning as the word trash? Now, which I asked early in the sermon, when was the last time you take out the trash? The word rubbish that Paul used here in verse 8 is translated from the Greek word skubalon. Skubalon. It refers to more than just crumpled papers in a dustbin that you discard because they are useless. The word skubalon literally means, listen to this, okay? The, the word skubalon literally means excrement of animals. Excrement of animals, or dung, D-U-N-G, dung. It means something completely worthless and detestable and filthy. Okay, that's what skubalon is. And that's the word that Paul is using here. So my question is, do you see the force of the word that Paul chose to use to represent all the impeccable credentials that he once possessed? He's saying that everything that he had, okay, 
all he wants treasured, they are excrement. They are dung. All the things that he wants held dear, they are filthy. He's saying that compared to Christ, all that he has built his life upon are now considered scubalon. At the end of the day, Paul discovered who he really was. He thought that he was some sort of saint, some super religious law keeper. But in reality, all his works and all his righteousness was utterly worthless. How about you and me? Are we willing to call our achievements, our successes, our qualifications as rubbish? My degree, your studies as rubbish, your career, my work as refuse, scubalon. What is your scubalon? What is my scubalon? Think about it. Are you willing to give up your rubbish, your scubalon, for a deeper relationship with Jesus? What could, what, what could be that rubbish or scubalon in our lives? Think about it. Paul identifies his scubalon as all the greatest achievements, accomplishments of his life. Who he was, what he was, his status, okay, and how he was before he knew Jesus. He identified all the trappings of success, money, fame, fortune, control, power, and position. All these are rubbish. We too, okay, we too often claim trash as treasure, rubbish as reward. Anything that isn't eternal is scubalon, is rubbish, is refuse. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. At this point, we're left wondering, what can I do to merit the righteousness God requires? What can I do? If everything that I have are rubbish, what can I do? Paul was a strict and no-nonsense Pharisee. And if he couldn't be saved based on his righteousness, who can save us? Who can save us? The dilemma is this. God requires perfect righteousness. No one has perfect righteousness. God will not grade on the curve or overlook our sins. How do we get the righteousness God requires? The answer is right here in verse 9. Be found in him and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. You think that you obey the law, you have your righteousness? But this is useless. Okay? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
A righteousness that comes not by working hard to keep the law, but comes by faith in Christ. Here, Paul outlines the results of a relationship with Jesus. Okay, there are two things, two results. When you have a relationship with Jesus, there are two results. First is that you gain Christ. Okay, you gain Christ. Christ becomes yours. You are his, and he is yours. As it, as it says in verse 8, okay, in order that I may gain Christ. Being found in Christ, okay, being united to Christ by faith, it is a permanent relationship of identity with Christ. It is infinitely more valuable than all of Paul's righteousness based on the law. Same for us. He is infinitely more valuable compared to everything that we have ever known. Know that only one thing will count before God. Only one thing counts before God. There is being found in Christ with a righteousness that comes from God, not ourselves. Paul treasures Christ above all things because only in Christ does he have a righteousness that counts with God. Everything else don't count. They do not matter at all. And the second thing, and the second thing is that Paul said that our lives will take the shape of Christ's life. Our lives will become like the life of Christ. Paul wrote some of the most beautiful and powerful words here in verses 10 to 11. That I, might, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Faith in Christ includes sharing in the four aspects of Christ's life. Four aspects that, that are colored here in the bolded four words. So first, again, knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is a lifelong journey of relationship with Jesus. It involves remembering our first love with Christ. Do you remember your first love with Christ? Recall that. Be thankful and grateful for how God reached out to you to love you, even though you rebel against him. Even though I am a sinner, Christ died for me. So remember your first love with Christ. Have a daily, ongoing, constant relationship with him. A constant fellowship with Christ during the whole day. Being aware of his presence. Being, being aware that he is with you. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And also an increasingly growing uh, intimacy with Christ in the relationship with him. Spend time to talk. Spend time just like a relationship with, with your spouse with your best friend, you know, just continue to talk, continue to know Christ more and more, continue to develop intimacy in this relationship with him. Draw near to him. James chapter 4 verse 8 says that when you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Second, again, the power of his resurrection. To know Christ clearly involves knowing the power of the resurrection. The resurrection the resurrection of Jesus conquered death and provided the way for us to know God. Have you experienced this resurrected life? A born-again Christian would know what it means to be raised from the earthly realm and be seated with Christ in God. Your citizenship is in heaven and the Holy Spirit has sealed you for the final day of redemption. 
Know that in your heart and leave that out by the grace of God. Now, these first two steps, the, the, the two uh, statements in blue here, okay? Uh, this, this, as, these two aspects of Christian life are welcomed by everyone. People, people like these two things. Know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. In fact, people tend to make the mistake thinking that these two are the only aspects of Christian living. The truth cannot be further than that. Look at three and four. Third, okay, the third thing. Paul notes that the importance of sharing in his sufferings, his sufferings, the sufferings of Christ. Many believers miss this trait, believing the Christian faith provides freedom from hardship, no more difficulty after you become a Christian. This is common false teaching of modern motivational speakers who use biblical terminology in their speeches. Paul and the rest of the early church knew that living for Christ included sharing in both the joys and the struggles of Christ. This means you have to suffer. Sometimes suffering comes. Okay, Paul personally endured hardships despite his faithful life spent serving Christ. So to know Christ, to experience his resurrection, you have to share in his suffering. And fourthly, Paul also notes the concept of mimicking Christ in his death, becoming like him in his death. Uh, now, some people think that this is the idea of martyrdom. You must die, physically die for Christ. But the focus is on becoming like him. You see the words like him in death. Not talking about the method of death. Okay, so he's not talking about martyrdom here. He's really talking about dying to self becoming like Christ, that Christ denied everything and lived for the purpose of God. So Paul wants us to die to the world of sin, to the world of temptation and flesh, so that the, the person can be fully transformed in order to be like Christ. That was Paul's desire, and that should be our desire as well. And finally, in verse 11, we find a focus on obtaining resurrection. What, what did Paul have in mind here? Many, many, view, uh, many views have been given regarding this verse. Uh, it's an interesting verse. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean, right? Uh, the two most likely views are either, uh, first, it's about rapture. That, that's the end time event, okay? Where all Christians who are alive, along with resurrected believers, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord. That was mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. Or it is just Paul's progression of thoughts. Okay, Paul talks about knowing Jesus and experiences resurrected powers. Okay, and then uh, and then it goes on to becoming uh, uh, sharing his sufferings and then becoming like him is death. So with the death, then Paul goes on to talk about being raised from the dead and thus showing us the assurance of some, uh, resurrection for the Christian, that resurrection will come for you. You will be resurrected one day. Now let's uh, make this really practical. Let's bring it home. Uh, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we all need to give up everything we have in order to go deeper with Jesus. So you go and sell all, all your possessions or burn all the things that you think, burn your certificates, you know, 
uh, burn burn your most precious uh, uh, trophy and things like that. I'm not saying that. Okay? If these things cause you to stumble and they become idols of your life, maybe you should discard them or destroy them or even burn them. If they, if they are your idols, okay, you burn them, yes. But if they are there as your possession, uh, they are there to remind you of the grace of God upon your life. And you look at them with the right attitude. It is okay to have them, keep them, okay? But get yourself right with God. I'm saying that we need to recognize what is treasure and what is not. Recognize what is treasure and what is not. Jesus might tell certain people to sell everything and follow him, like what he told the rich young ruler. But he might not tell everyone the same thing. Okay? So you need to, all of us need to do this. This is what Jesus tells us. We need to recognize what is treasure and what is trash. That we have all to do. All of us must do. When we look at our lives again, they often seem out of control. Time demands are endless. Have you ever felt that you are being spread too thin? The reason is we have too much scubalon in our lives. Replace the scubalon with something of infinite value. It's not enough to know that the, uh, what is rubbish and what is not. Okay. There must be a replacement of the rubbish. Jesus speaking in the parable says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought that pearl. We instead go the other way. We go the opposite way. Instead of keeping the pearl of great price, we all are guilty of giving up what is most important for what, we, what will never last. When our schedules get too hectic, or our lives are too demanding, what do we cut out first? Not the sports, functions or parties, events that we enjoy going. Not the recreational activities, the, re the relaxation that we like to enjoy. Not the, time, not the time spent watching Netflix or YouTube. It is usually our worship time at church that suffers. It's our quiet time of reading the Bible that suffers. It's our time of prayer, our time of reflection that suffers. Too often in our lives, we, we are selling the pearl of great value for the scubalon of the world. Instead of the other way around, we should let go of all this scubalon and purchase, replace them with the pearl of great price. If we want to go into a deeper relation with Jesus, a relationship more intimate, more alive, a life transformed by Christ, we must determine what is really important. And we need to begin to live and show that it is important. Recall again what Paul said, verses 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. 
You see, Paul says here, we gain Christ when we choose to give up the trash. Paul says that he has suffered the loss of all things for Christ, but it was worth it. The hardest thing is to give up something for nothing. Giving up the stuff everybody else is doing at first seems really hard. Rearranging your life seems to be too much of a trouble, too much to handle. Eventually, you will begin to see what the deeper walk with Christ is like. Eventually, you will see it. You will begin to find his will sweeping, your, your, uh, sweeping you steadily along instead of the many wind and waves of life. Instead of being blown by things left and right, you will find the ability to follow his will. You begin to know his peace, his joy, and his sustaining power in your life when you follow Christ. And let go of the scuba Lord. You begin to see the effects of God's grace upon your life and how he sovereignly uses your life to impact others. Then, only then you will realize how, how little you left behind and how great your gain really is. Will you, by the grace of God, leave behind what you once treasure? Will you empty all you once held dear? Will you throw away what you have built your life upon? The things that you think can replace God's presence? Will you take out the trash today and every day? See to it that all trash are removed from your life and turn to Christ, the only one who satisfies. Let us close in prayer. Father, we pray that as you have given us your grace, you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've given us the Holy Spirit, we truly thank you. We are indebted to you eternally, Lord. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your great love, Lord. We pray that we will echo Paul's words, that we want to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection, and also not to forget to share in his sufferings and to become like him in his death so that we will attain the resurrection from the dead. All this by your grace, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.